This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 35, The Battle of Zella. Zella was a Pontic city, which is located at the modern city of Zile in the north of Turkey, around 70 miles from the Black Sea. We don't know a great deal about this area until the emergence of the Hatti culture, first mentioned as existing around the time of the Akkadians towards the latter end of the 3rd millennium BCE. Festivals were held by the Hatti at a city called Narak, which would have been in the northern reaches of their area of influence, in the same area of Anatolia as Zella. One of the more influential cities of this area of Anatolia was Hattusha, which would later become the capital of the Hittite Empire in the 2nd millennium BCE. And scriptures from the city of Hattusha make reference to a palace settlement at a place called Sapinua, which is less than 40 miles west of Zella. All of these lands and cities would be in the heartland of the Hittite Empire in this millennium. Upon the collapse of the Hittite Empire, the capital city of Hattusha was destroyed and we don't really know a lot about what was going on in the area of Zella in the direct aftermath. Certainly the Phrygian culture was among the first to emerge in central Anatolia, but this would have been mainly in the lands to the west of Zella. After the late Bronze Age collapse, the political status of these lands was very humble and comparatively negligible in the grand scheme of international politics, and it would be this way for many centuries. The next major power to grow in Anatolia was the Kingdom of Lydia. It was possibly King Gigas of Lydia who advanced eastwards from the Lydian heartlands, pushing the Sumerian barbarians away from the lands around Zella. When King Cyaxares of the Medes expanded his influence from the east following the fall of the Assyrian Empire, an agreement between the Medes and the Lydians defined the border between the two empires at the Halis River, which is known in the modern world as the Kazulamak River. So now the area of the city of Zella would have been within Median territory. Back in episode 1 we learned of how the Achaemenid Persians under King Cyrus the Great took over the lands of the Medes during the 6th century BCE and Zella would have become an Achaemenid city. The Achaemenids would build royal roads which could only help the Anatolian cities of the empire by creating a good commercial link to the fertile lands of Mesopotamia. The Cappadocian state would be split into two which would put Zella 
into the new state of Pontus Cappadocia. Zella would be a location for building works such as Persian temples during this period. We know that Zella would have been definitely Persian for the duration of the Achaemenid Empire. The next political shift for the city would have been when Alexander the Great campaigned from his homeland in Macedonia eastwards across the Achaemenid Empire. After Alexander scored a famous first major victory in Asiatic lands at the Battle of the Granicus River in 334 BCE, this effectively allowed Alexander a route towards the lands including the city of Zella as the Achaemenid power slipped away to the east. After the death of Alexander the Great, the former Achaemenid lands were partitioned among Alexander's successors and Eumenes, the personal secretary of Alexander the Great, gained control of Cappadocia. As impressive as Eumenes was, as we discovered in episode 21, he backed the wrong horse when he allied himself with the ill-fated Mesopotamian satrap Perdiccas. Eumenes was removed from his position and Seleucus Nicator would be the overlord of Cappadocia, which would come under the influence of the Seleucid Empire. Pontus The Persian ruler of the city of Chios in the Bithynian Kingdom would take control of the northern region of Cappadocia and declare it as an independent kingdom of Pontus and he would rule as Mithridates I and this was in the year 281 BCE so towards the end of the age of the Diadochi. Mithridates had stood up to Seleucus Nicator in order to win the independence of Pontus. It is difficult to accurately track the politics of the city of Zella at this point as it was on the borderlands of the kingdom of Pontus and the Seleucid semi-autonomous kingdom of Cappadocia so it would have had multiple influences. Pontus itself remained an independent kingdom during the era of the Seleucid Empire and of course this was the period of the expansion of the Roman Republic. Towards the end of the 3rd century BCE, the Cappadocians were able to free themselves from the overlordship of the Seleucid Empire. Cappadocia would expand its own area of influence, but not at the expense of the Pontic Kingdom. We are aware that around this time the Kingdom of Pontus made a marriage alliance with the Seleucid Empire in the usual Game of Thrones whenever you find a number of kingdoms in close proximity with one another, when loyalties and alliances readily shift as each kingdom prioritises its own interests. We then have to look to the 2nd century BCE to see how Pontus attempted to expand its influence along the Black Sea coastal lands, heading towards Bithynia and the Bosporus. The Black Sea cities were a great opportunity for trade and wealth and therefore they were very important to the Bithynians and the Pergameans as well. So there had to be a degree of diplomatic aptitude employed by the states concerned. 
the Roman Republic. So if we consider the journey from Rome to Pontus, we know that the Romans are based on the Italian peninsula, the land of their origin and the city of Rome. Heading eastwards, we cross the Adriatic Sea to the Balkan Peninsula. The Balkan Peninsula was dominated by the Macedonians during the time of the Roman expansion. As we continue east, we enter the lands of Thrace. Then we come to the body of water called the Propontis, which is flanked by the strait of water called the Hellespont to the west and the Bosporus Strait in the east. The Propontis is called the Sea of Marmara in the modern world. The other side of the Propontis and you enter Asiatic lands having left European lands. This is what was called Asia Minor, the landmass called Anatolia. This is where we find the Kingdom of Pergamon. And as we travel along the Black Sea coast, we go through the Kingdom of Bithynia and then eventually to the Kingdom of Pontus. Before the Roman Republic started expanding, they had to consolidate their dominance of the Italian peninsula. Initially, they achieved dominance of the Latins of their local proximity, then they would achieve the influence of Etruscan societies to their north and Italic societies such as the Samnites to their south. After the Epirates invaded from across the Adriatic, the Roman response was to subjugate Magna Graecia, the extreme south of the Italian peninsula and the area which was colonised by the classical Greek cities of the early 1st millennium BCE. The land of Illyria, across the Adriatic Sea and to the north of Epirus, was dominated by the Ardeae tribe. And this tribe would be subdued by the Romans, effectively giving them a foothold and an ally in the Balkan Peninsula, which they may have deemed necessary, given that there were some very able kingdoms in the Balkans, that may have wished to have invaded Roman territory on the Italian peninsula. Having influence over Illyria would have allowed the Romans to keep an eye on this political situation. Tensions increased and erupted into the Macedonian Wars. The Romans would be supported in its conflicts with the Macedonians by their Asiatic allies across the Aegean in Pergamon. Ultimately, the Romans would defeat the Macedonians, initially taking control of Macedonia and Epirus, and then eventually these lands would be completely annexed and the entire Balkan Peninsula would become a province of the Roman Republic. Shortly after this period, the loyal ally of the Romans, the Kingdom of Pergamon, actually devoted itself to the Roman Republic when King Attalus III of Pergamon left his kingdom to Rome in his will. Not all the Pergamians were happy about this, but it happened nonetheless. Now the Romans had control of all of the lands of the Aegean Sea and for the first time had Asian provinces. Now the only major lands between the Romans and the Pontics were the Black Sea coastal lands of Bithynia and the landlocked kingdom of Cappadocia in central Anatolia.
The Mithridatic Wars The Mithridatic Wars were a set of conflicts between the Roman Republic and the Kingdom of Pontus. Mithridates VI became the King of Pontus in 120 BCE and he would have ambitions of creating a Pontic Empire. The Black Sea also had an ancient name given to it by the Greeks and it was called Pontus Axinos. So it is from this name that we get the name for the Kingdom of Pontus. We also get the name Pontic Caspian Steppe which are the grasslands to the north of the Caucasus, the lands between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. All of these names come from the Greek name for the sea, which can also be found in the words Propontis and Hellespont. Mithridates VI wanted to create a Pontic Empire around the rich Black Sea. Expanding anti-clockwise around the sea was Colchis, which Mithridates subdued before continuing around the coast to the Crimea. These lands were very rich in resources and trading opportunity, especially as they were accessible by boat from the Mediterranean. Mithridates would also turn his attention on becoming involved in the politics of Pontus's Anatolian neighbours, including Paphlagonia, Galatia and Cappadocia even indirectly deposing rulers and organising for preferred leaders to take control of such lands in order for the region to become more favourable to Pontic interference. So Mithridates VI was drawing attention to himself and this wasn't popular with the Romans who were now directly involved in Anatolian politics. Mithridates had no problem with antagonising the Romans with it being reported that he was supporting the Greek-occupied cities of Western Anatolia that harboured anti-Roman sentiments. Roman populations in Anatolian cities were under threat when the forces of Mithridates arrived, with evidence of massacres incurred by the Pontics and Roman garrisons being destroyed with their commanders being captured. This was too much for the Romans to accept, and so their leading statesman at the time, Sulla, travelled to Anatolia in the midst of a civil conflict in Rome itself to deal with the issue. Sulla drove out the puppet ruler that had been placed in Athens and drove the Pontic armies out of the Balkans, which they had successfully reached in their expansions. Various victories on the Balkan Peninsula and the Anatolian Peninsula by the Romans under Sulla's command heavily regulated the Pontic ambitions under Mithridates VI. At this point Sulla came to terms with Mithridates and returned to Rome to deal with a huge civil issue with the followers of his Roman arch-nemesis Gaius Marius and this marked the end of the First Mithridatic War. Tensions still remained high between the Pontics and the Romans in Anatolia throughout the 80s BCE and even though Sulla had left the region Mithridates battled with the Roman armies that remained in Anatolia, scoring victories in what has been dubbed the Second Mithridatic War. Rome was still in the midst of a civil conflict and had other priorities, and so the situation was not readdressed until the following decade. 
Mithridates was causing far too many problems in Anatolia and despite everything that the Romans were dealing with, both on foreign soils and back at home in Rome, something needed to be done or Mithridates would start building a Pontic Empire that would rival Roman interests in the eastern Mediterranean. The Roman Senate had decided that Mithridates and Pontus needed to be eliminated completely. They sent the optimate politician Lucius Licinius Lucullus to Anatolia to lead an army against Mithridates. The Bithynians and the Galatians would support the Romans as they were sick of Pontic ambitions and terrorism in their lands. Mithridates VI's most trusted ally was King Tigranes II of Armenia, the land directly to the east of Pontus. This was an alliance that both Pontus and Armenia had deemed to be necessary, not least of all for the fact that the two nations were sandwiched between the mighty Romans in the west and the mighty Parthians in the east. Lucullus went to Anatolia and waged war against Mithridates and he was very successful. This was the third Mithridatic war. A decisive battle took place just 60 miles from Zella within Pontus at a location called Cabira in 72 BCE where Lucullus scored a decisive victory over Mithridates in his own heartlands. Mithridates was forced to flee his own kingdom having exhausted his financial supplies and he headed to the kingdom of Armenia and the man who was often his ally King Tigranes II. Tensions heightened between the Romans and the Armenians at this point and just three years later the Romans under Lucullus met the Armenians under Tigranes at the Battle of Tigranicerta. The Romans scored a victory and both Tigranes and Mithridates were forced to flee north. Despite Lucullus's incredible achievements against these two mighty kings, civil disputes in Rome led to an internal uprising against Lucullus. Lucullus was deposed and Gnaeus Pompeius, commonly known as Pompey, took over the command of the Roman Asiatic forces. Mithridates VI was never able to regain the kingdom of Pontus as Pompey prevented his return. The result of this was the end of the Mithridatic Wars and the eventual suicide of Mithridates VI. It appears that he had run out of places to flee to as his presence was simply now seen as a danger. Finally, after a long life and a notable lifetime, the greatest ruler of Pontus had been removed from the political scene. Pharnakis II Back in 97 BCE, Pharnakis was born to his father, Mithridates VI, and his mother, Laudis, who was also his aunt because Mithridates and Laodis were brother and sister. This kind of relationship was not uncommon in the ancient Egyptian royal family, so it is not the first time we have seen a king have a sister wife. 
Mithridates would raise Pharnaces in the hope that he would be the one to succeed him as the ruler of the kingdom of Pontus. However, this was obviously dealt a severe blow when Mithridates VI had to flee his own kingdom, as we have already described. Also, we learned of how those associated with Mithridates VI chose to turn their back on him, probably fearing for their own safety, knowing that the mighty Romans were after his head. Pharnaces would have also realised this, and this is likely to have prompted him to not stand by his father and maybe even attempt to depose him. Ultimately, he was successful as Mithridates' own men turned against him and shifted loyalties to Pharnaces. By this time, the only lands that the Pontics had any control over was that of the Bosporan kingdom. But we should not be confused with the Bosporus Strait near the modern city of Istanbul. The Bosporan kingdom was actually centred around the Myatine Swamp, which is the modern sea of Azov, which separates the Crimean Peninsula from the Ukrainian mainland at the north of the Black Sea. So the Pontics were a long way from Pontus, which was now controlled by the Romans. The Roman commander Pompey allowed Pharnaces to rule the Bosporan kingdom unhindered by the Romans. The situation remained quiet for many years until tensions in Rome had reached unbearable levels and Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 49 BCE, plunging the Roman Republic into a brutal civil war. Pharnaces would use this distraction to start realising his own ambitions. He would return back clockwise around the Black Sea, taking back Colchis, which his father had taken when campaigning from Pontus many years before. Then Pharnaces would use opportunism, diplomacy and force to take control of various Anatolian cities in Armenia, Cappadocia and Galatia before defeating the Roman general in Pontus, Gnaeus Domitius Calvinus, who had been sent to deal with the problem. This defeat meant that Julius Caesar himself would have to deal with the problem. Pontus had been restored under the rule of Pharnaces II. Julius Caesar Now, we're not going to delve too deeply into the life of Julius Caesar because our next episode will profile him. And he was discussed during last week's episode covering the Gallic Wars. We know that Caesar defeated the Gauls in Central Europe during the course of the 50s BCE, before the Roman Senate, under the influence of Pompey, ordered Caesar to disband his army. Caesar refused and brought his army across the Rubicon River in a symbolic declaration of war against Pompey and his supporters. It was this situation in Rome which created the distraction that Pharnaces required in order to reacquire the kingdom of Pontus as described earlier. The Roman Senate had grossly underestimated Caesar's popularity and was forced to flee when Caesar's soldiers showed loyalties that Pompey and his followers could have only hoped for. Pompey was forced to flee Rome 
and Caesar entered the city and took control and was granted the status of Roman dictator taking charge of the Roman military. The culmination of the conflict between Caesar and Pompey was on the Balkan Peninsula. Caesar struggled to unite all of his legions in one place which allowed Pompey to take the upper hand in the exchanges between them. However, Mark Antony eventually arrived to support Caesar and Pompey was defeated. Pompey fled to Egypt where he was brutally murdered on his arrival. Caesar himself then travelled to Egypt where he would make an alliance with the Egyptian Queen Cleopatra VII. Now that his long-time rival, Pompey, was out of the picture, Caesar would be able to plan his campaign into Asiatic lands to deal with the situation that Domitius Calvinus had failed to deal with in Pontus. Prelude to the Battle Having Egypt as an ally was always favourable due to Egypt's rich and often unchallenged culture which capitalised on the fertility of the Nile Valley. Caesar would be able to plan his next moves into the lands of Anatolia and the Middle East where there were actually a number of issues that needed to be dealt with. Pharnakis had been enslaving and castrating Romans in Anatolia. Another class of people from Rome who had been operating in Anatolia were the equestrian tax farmers, whom we mentioned back in episode 31. And Pharnakis had been murdering those Roman equities operating in his locality. This kind of behaviour angered Caesar, who seemingly saw this as a blatant disrespect for Roman culture. Pharnakis did not seem to be too concerned about how Caesar felt, believing that he could still appease him. Pharnakis would send envoys to meet with Caesar and offer the hand of his daughter in marriage and royal gifts, but Caesar was not interested in such things. Caesar wanted to stamp out this extremely inhospitable new emergence of Pontus, believing that it was Roman territory. Caesar's biggest challenge was raising an army fit enough to fight Pharnakis, who was effectively on home soil. Firstly, he would exploit the Asiatic societies who had offered support to his deceased rival Pompey. One such society was Galatia, led by their king, Deiotarus. Deiotarus was allowed to continue as the king as long as he pledged to help the Romans. And so he did. However, it still seems like the Romans were outnumbered going into this battle. The Romans always liked to build fortifications where they could. They feverishly built them at Elysia when besieging the Gauls. So Caesar camped nearby to where Pharnakis' own father Mithridates VI defeated the Romans 20 years earlier and he fortified it. Pharnakis saw this as an opportunity to catch Caesar out due to him being preoccupied with consolidating his physical location. The Battle of Zella Pharnakis had lined up his army 
and was advancing on the Roman position. Caesar was very surprised. Caesar was definitely preparing for an engagement but did not expect Pharnaces to set the pace. Pharnaces used the scythed chariots that had also been favoured by his father. These scythed chariots would have a scythe blade protruding from its wheels. Looking across from the Pontic camp, these chariots would be required to drop into the valley between the two camps before heading uphill towards the Romans. Caesar was surprised by this tack both due to timing and method. The Romans would have to get themselves organised quickly and prepared themselves to launch an assault with javelins and darts to try to hold up the chariots who were causing damage to the hastily organised Roman front line. This brought the Romans a bit of time to get organised before the arrival of the Pontic infantry and by the time of their arrival the Romans were able to engage in battle. The battle was long and hard fought between the two armies. The Romans reportedly started getting the upper hand on their right hand side and this would cause a wave of weakness through the Pontic lines. Caesar would ensure that his legions would capitalise on having the upper hand in these exchanges and it wouldn't be long before Pharnaces realised that he was in a tight spot and needed to retreat. The Pontics hastily retreated back across the valley, many of which abandoned their weapons in order to escape as quickly as possible. The Romans pursued them across the valley, killing and capturing as many men as possible. The Romans reached the Pontic camp, and despite some very stout resistance from those men defending the fortifications there, the Romans destroyed it. Pharnaces, by this time, was gone. Aftermath The sources are scant in quantity and scant in detail. As we do also have an account of the Romans actually instigating the battle. But the version that we have described has been based on the literature called the Alexandrine War a contemporary account written by an unknown author. Pharnaces went back to where he actually came from, despite being directly descended from Pontic monarchs. His actual base was back in the Bosporan kingdom. Caesar was not really bothered about Pharnaces, as he had achieved what he needed to by taking back the Pontic kingdom and eliminating the Pontic threat. Caesar would leave the region and leave his men to ensure that Pharnaces was gone from Pontus. When Pharnaces arrived back in the Posporum kingdom, the man who he had left in charge of the kingdom, his son-in-law Asander, had decided to switch his allegiance to the Romans rather than stand by a defeated king. Pharnaces had had done to him what he himself had done to his own father. Pharnaces faced a battle with Asander on his return and was killed and possibly because 
he had lost valuable military resources in Anatolia, meaning he returned to the Bosporan kingdom weak-handed. Caesar left the region and would ultimately end up going back to Rome. There he would begin planning his next Asiatic campaign, and this time it would be to avenge the Parthian defeat and murder of Crassus, Caesar's triumvirate ally. However, before Caesar could start out on this campaign, he would be ferociously assassinated by a group of political opponents. The scythed chariot was not really favoured in this part of the world ever again. It was difficult to organise these chariots as they were unable to manoeuvre too close to one another for obvious reasons. This particular battle is certainly not one of the more well-known battles in history and our details of it are quite vague but it does seem that Caesar really didn't have much right to win it considering how small the force that he was able to leave Egypt with was and the fact that he had to recruit on the move. So this could be another fine example as to why Julius Caesar is regarded as one of history's greatest military commanders. Thanks to the Greek historian Plutarch, it is also known as the battle which prompted Caesar to write a letter to the Roman Senate stating Veni, Vidi, Vici, which means I came, I saw, I conquered. Okay, so yet another battle episode is done and over with, and uh, we've had loads of them, haven't we? We just can't get away from all these battles, but it's a great opportunity to explore the other societies that were in and around the Roman uh, sort of realm of influence or or the Roman world as they knew it, and um, some of them we can't really devote a whole episode to. So, like the Pontic Kingdom, we can't. It's not really one that we would devote a whole episode to but it's interesting to explore that a little bit more deeply and um, these battles as much as the information is quite scant in uh, relation to the battle itself it's a great opportunity to look at the Pontics uh, more closely and learn a bit more about Mithridates VI who was obviously a great military commander of his age so it's a they're they're good episodes they're good learning uh, opportunities for some of the other societies. Now, we did mention during the course of the podcast that next week we're going to be talking about Julius Caesar. So the time is now for the profile of Julius Caesar. And um, such is the the importance of Julius Caesar that in terms of reviewing his life, I think it's going to be a little bit too much for just one episode. So I think the next two weeks are going to be devoted to Caesar. So fascinating is his life and, and so many events and so many uh, connotations in terms of what his, uh, what was going on around him and uh, exploring some of the aspects of Roman society as well that uh, prompted some of the events to happen. It's nice to explore the reasons behind the events. So if we're going to do that properly, I think we're going to be looking at uh, two separate episodes, part one and part two, uh, as the profile for Julius Caesar. It's going to be absolutely fascinating as we uh, as we take the journey from the times of conflict between Marius and Sulla 
right the way through the triumvirate and the, the fall of the triumvirate and uh, and Caesar's ultimate demise. So it's going to be great. It's going to be absolutely fantastic to explore that period. The um, podcast um, is always is doing ever so well at the moment. So I thank everyone for listening. And uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Otherwise, um, we also love to get financial contributions as well. So if you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, you can click on the Patreon link and make a monthly donation. When you do so, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you are entitled to the, uh, the gifts that come with it. We send out courtesy gifts to those of you who are kind enough to join the History of the World podcast Illuminati and accrue the relevant amount of uh, donations in order to qualify for the gifts themselves. So uh, all the information is on the website. Please go along and have a little little look around, a little uh, exploration of that. And um, do please consider making a contribution. It really does help. It helps me to devote more time to the project and to... Um, to gather more resources which in, enhances the uh, accuracy and the veracity of all the information provided so please do consider that I'll tell you what else I really like I like it when you write a message to me and let me know that you're listening to the podcast what you think of it what what particular aspects of the podcast you enjoy and uh, and it gives me an opportunity to uh, give you um, a few seconds of fame through the podcast. So, like for example, I got a message from Jason Dirk this week, who's who's written a comment that says, "Just wanted to give you a shout out for a job well done. I had listened through volumes one and two before I started all over, or before I decided to start all over again. This time, with a copy of the wonderful book called A History of the World, Map by Map." I find it invaluable to consider the geography, climate and terrain of the areas that you mention and what better way is there than to see it on a map. Living here in southeastern Washington state, I also found your discussion about the food truck in Moscow, uh, Idaho, an absolute hoot, especially considering that back in the 90s, I attended Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, which was only about 10 miles across the border from Moscow. As I listen to your distinctive voice, I find myself pausing often so that I make it look up terms such as Bluefish Cave, Clovis Culture and Olduvai Gorge. I'm continually impressed by the breadth and depth of your research as it is quite clear that you use multiple sources and are able to weave many different and often incompatible perspectives into your narrative. Cheers to you and I wish you years of success telling our story right up through to the modern era. Sincerely, Jason. That's a great message, Jason. Thanks very much. Do you know what? It all went quiet on the um, on the grub truck front, didn't it? We were trying to work out, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google search grub truck Moscow and you will see a little iconic image of a creature uh, that we really couldn't work out what it was when we were trying to uh, look at the... Well, this was during Volume 1. This was right back in the early days of the podcast. It was during Volume 1 when we were talking about different human ancestors. 
and um, we really couldn't figure out what this animal was. And um, so um, now that we've got a wider range of listeners, maybe you can all go and Google uh, Grub Truck Moscow and write in with your opinion as to what this animal on the grub truck was. I even went to the trouble of like trying to contact someone from the grub truck, but got absolutely blanked in uh, in the most rude fashion, uh, absolute blankage. Um, they were probably, to be fair, they were probably too busy cooking food to worry about um, what I thought of their icon. But nonetheless, um, we never got to the bottom of it. We never got the answer that we were looking for. So, but thanks for the comment, Jason. Obviously, yes, that book. Um, History of the World, map by map, it's a, it's a great resource. Um, I've, I've, I'm well aware of it. And um, if you like maps, it's probably one of the best books um, regarding historical mapping um, and comprehension of that in terms of like, if you want to learn more about the geography of, of history, yeah, you can't do. You can't find many better books, I don't think, than that one. The, the other one that I mentioned was the history of uh, the historical atlas of the world, um, which I believe is uh, published by Paragon Books. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, I might have just made up a, a book publisher there, but I think I think that's correct. But yes, certainly I I, I think it's not for everyone. Historical mapping. But yes, uh, the the book that you mentioned, Jason, is definitely one of the better resources that I've stumbled across. Well, that's it. I'm going to leave it this week. Um, next week, it's going to be a biggie. It's going to be a monster. It's going to be Julius Caesar, Gaius Julius Caesar, and uh, the whole story of his lifetime, this very, very critical point in Roman history. Um, one of the most iconic characters of history. And uh, this critical time at the end of the Republic as it was spiralling out of control and we just need to put all the pieces of the jigsaw together. And Julius Caesar does that wonderfully and we're going to find that out next week. So uh, looking forward to that. Until next week, thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and be good, everybody, be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, History of the world podcast.com you can join our discussion forum and find us on social media support the podcast for as little as one dollar per month by clicking the patreon link email the show at history of the world podcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.